Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series where we explore the science fiction field from all angles, covering the past, the present, and even the future. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And today we're doing our second annual Backwards Time Travel episode, where we hurtle back to an old science fiction magazine to see whether it holds up to the ravages of time. Last December we went back 70 years to 1951, so this year we're going back a mere 60 years to 1962. Uh, Are you ready for the journey, Colin? I am ready. I'm buckled down and ready to go. (laughs) But first, some comments on the last episode where we looked at Star Trek Bibles. Uh, Steve left us a comment saying, I learned a lot. I got to listen to it on my morning commute. So thank you, Steve. Michael said, great discussion, guys. There is a great article about series Bibles along with 40 downloadable samples here. And he sent us a link to a website which has loads of Bibles on from TV series. Thank you, Michael. And the last one is from Emmanuel, who said, Great discussion on how TV shows like Star Trek, TOS and TNG came about and were structured. I really enjoyed that. Regarding the quiz, maybe you found the catchphrase and not the French title for The Matrix, because it was known in French as La Maîtrise, or just Matrix. (laughs) So whatever it was I said it was called, it wasn't called that, apparently. So I think Colin gets an extra point for that. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I needed extra points. That That one got me. He finished by saying, good work on your French accent, though. So thank you, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a French speaker. Well, and if he's the Emmanuel I'm thinking, he also has a French history podcast that I hear is excellent. He does indeed, yes. So we're sort of ready to go into the main body of today's show, which is reviewing an old magazine. It's the December 1962 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And we'll put a direct link to it on our blog, which is 101sf.blogspot.com. So you can have a look and see what it is we're talking about. Colin, what was your first impression when you were just sort of leafing through the magazine? What was your first impression of this 1962 fantasy and science fiction I actually had a lot of problems leafing through this magazine. I tend to use uh, Barnes & Noble, the Nook app for reading things, and so I sideloaded the, the PDF for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I found out that there were like literally thousands of pages in this PDF. <laughs> because you would like swipe from left to right, yeah. and it would loop on certain sets of pages. Oh, but you found a workaround, did you? I did. Very, very fortunately for me, every page <laughs> in this PDF has a prominent number in one top corner or the other. You're right. And uh, if you get stuck in a loop, you can uh, bring up the uh, the list of pages on the bottom and skip to the right correct page. Of course. Uh, I was kind of also struck by the lack of ads. I think the 1951 magazine that we did last year had m- many more ads in the body of it than this. I wonder if that means that things had more of a... Uh, subscription method of support than than being ad supported. It's also a far less illustrated magazine than the one we had last year. I'm sure the one we looked at last year, which was Galaxy, I'm sure that had pictures. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas this one, fantasy and science fiction, hardly anything at all in terms of interior illustration. The other thing that personally I find a bit awkward with fantasy and science fiction 
certainly from this era, and I think it might still be the same today. They use a two-column format, and I find the columns aren't quite wide enough. I know what you mean, yeah. Anyway, they had no way of knowing we were going to view these on tablets 60 years later. No, no. <laughs> Do you know much about the magazine of fantasy and science fiction? Continuously running since... Uh, Fall of 1949. Which means that uh, this issue that we're reading from 62 is already quite a considerable way into its lifespan, isn't it? I mean, we're talking, what, probably about 13, 12 or 13 years or something. So it's, it's a mature magazine by this point. The magazine began just as the magazine of fantasy... And then they added the and science fiction at a later date. And also that it apparently absorbed another magazine. There was a magazine called Venture Science Fiction, which ran just for one year in 57, 58. And that was absorbed into fantasy and science fiction. Presumably it didn't do very well as a, a separate magazine. So it was absorbed into it. Did you notice who the cover art was by? No, I didn't. It's by Chesley Bonestell, who's one of the most famous um, sort of astronomical painters of all time and did a lot of work in film and an awful lot of this kind of presentation of um, imaginary planets. I've got a note somewhere. Uh, what is it? The cover shows binary star R.W. Persei, whatever that is. Um, but it's, it, it's kind of a view from the surface of a planet, and that's typical of what Chesley Bonestell did. And there was a documentary about him that came out a couple of years ago. It's really a very interesting character. Hmm. So he must have been like similar to the John Williams of science fiction planet depiction of the day. Yes, yes, but with paintbrush rather than baton. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed just within the magazine, after the table of contents, I think, they give a brief intro to the magazine, giving you an indication of what's coming up and then half a page previewing the next issue. Also, I noticed that each story had a little preamble about the author of the story, uh, and these tended to be quite anecdotal, and I found those quite entertaining, and sometimes they illuminated the story for me, quite frankly, because some of the stories I, I thought, what? <laughs> what is this even about? <laughs> but we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. For example, like the the preview for the first story is, despite my protest, I was born April twenty first, nineteen thirty three. Said Jim Harmon, <laughs> and that turns out to be true because I, I fact checked it. I've got his dates here: nineteen thirty three to twenty ten. Jim Harmon, uh, as you say, the author of that first story was primarily a short story writer. Uh, flourished in the 1950s and 60s. He later became a historian of radio, published loads of books about old-time radio, that kind of thing. Hmm. And from what I gather, he wrote mostly short stories and published just one novel. Or when I say published, there was one novel which was published, and it was published posthumously. So he was mainly a short story writer and a hist historical writer. Do you feel up to doing a, a plot summary of The Debt? by Jim Harmon. I do. Our main character has to travel through the center of the earth in order to receive an inheritance. It's a very limited time and the fastest way to get there is going through the middle. <laughs> and it, his cousin turns out to also be on this ship. And if he can delay the arrival of, of our main character, he will get the inheritance instead. Mm -hmm. And so he sabotages the ship 
not understanding that the next ship will be following 20 minutes later and will kill everybody on board. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Colin, have you ever ridden a train? Yes. In fact, I'm going to be riding one on Saturday. Oh, wow. Have you ever worried while riding a train that the next train following on behind might run into the back of you? Uh, so most of my train riding has been here in the United States. The only mm-hmm. place I've worried about being hit by a train was in Europe. Ooh, why the difference? Uh, well, in the United States, the fastest moving trains are the passenger trains. The freight trains move quite a bit more slowly. Okay. Um, and, and you're very likely to get stuck, especially where I live, because up the spine of Oregon, there is one set of tracks. Oh, right. Yes. And uh, the freight railroads do not obey the rules about giving priority to the passenger railroads. Yikes. So you can be stuck for hours uh, trying to get to a point where you can get off the rails so that a freight rail can pass you and then allowed to get back on the line. Yes, yes. We do have similar problems here, but I think that our, our trains are a bit more frequent than yours. But it occurred to me that if Jim Harmon, the author of this story, was in charge of the railways, nobody would ride them. Because in his system of getting people from, what was it, um, Chicago to Cape Town. That sounds right. Travelling through the centre of the earth. Nobody's thought to put in a safety system to prevent one rocket colliding with the next one. Yeah, because the ship was essentially dead in the water, the radio that they had couldn't be used. Yeah, so they couldn't even say stop to the the following vehicle. Yes. Uh, You can probably guess from the, the tone of my reaction that i don't really care for this story (laughs) (laughs) it's the most science fictiony story in this magazine true i was intrigued by it and the first thing i wanted to do really was pick up a globe and see where chicago is in relation to cape town because i was quite curious would you go through the very center of the earth or would you miss the core of the earth and i I still haven't really worked that out because i don't have a globe you know i didn't even think about doing that But I wonder if Mr. Google knows, what is on the opposite (laughs) side of the world from Chicago? I never thought to ask. The Kerguelen Islands, or Iles... I'm not going to try and read that French. (laughs) Port-au-Francais, Kerguelen, French Southern Territories. Okay, so it's it's not diametrically opposite then, so it probably doesn't go through the core. Yeah, I was a, a little bit concerned about the lack of safety systems in this story. But uh, also the characterization, which I thought was very old-fashioned. It felt like something from the 1940s. That was a general tone to a lot of the stories in this. Yeah. Um, and, and at first I thought, because like you mentioned, it seemed a little clunky. And then I realized, no, this is actually supposed to be funny. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I was embarrassed about, because I'm like, I should be able to recognize humor when I read it, right? Oh, and no. a, a, apparently I don't, so... <laughs> Now I feel like I may have missed other things in the past that I've read that should have been funny. And we're like, oh, man, this is kind of lame. Oh, dear. Would you um, do you think you would ever read this story again? I would. But I think I would do it for a demonstrative reason. The science in it, I think, is bad. Really bad? Yeah. (laughs) Well, if I remember my, my basic physics correctly, if you are an object at rest... Nothing can move it unless it's acted on by an outside force. And I don't remember if, I don't know if you remember how they eventually got the ship to move, but our our main character said, oh, everybody run up to the front and that'll make us go forward. Yeah. Which it would, 
if if you were you know on a teeter totter or something else but if you're mm-hmm. suspended in zero gravity that won't do anything yeah as you move away from the center of gravity there's the ship will just rotate slightly in space and yeah and and, and i thought it's a bit like trying to what he describes dear listener <laughs> to get this rocket moving is everyone should sort of run and push against the seats and then that will move it forward and that struck me as a bit like trying to push a car from the inside oh yeah, yeah. if you had to push start a car you you get somebody outside the car to do the pushing but this basically says that you just move within the car and then you'd start rolling forwards no that, you're right that's not how <laughs> physics works I, my note is nonsense physics um i my assumption is that what he meant is that they were at some sort of balance point where they only had to nudge the vehicle a, a small amount for it to effectively run downhill um, because i think the the idea is supposed to be that as you travel through the earth though you're not weightless all the way you start off with weight and you end up with weight but you will go through a point in the middle where you are weightless and i'm assuming that what the author intended is that they were sort of perched on that zero point and they only had to nudge it a small amount for it to effectively roll downhill but what i didn't get is how if that's the case how would you be sure that you wouldn't accidentally nudge it in the opposite direction and send it back down the hill on the other side? Oh, heading back to the ship that was following <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and the characters were uh, a little rough, but I think they were drawn to be rough on purpose. Yeah, I think we could generously say that, couldn't we? And that's all part of this sort of humorous angle. But uh, yeah, didn't like it very much. Let us move on. Do you even remember the next one? <laughs> the next one is a rather short, short story, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yes. Ferdinand Feghout, uh, 57, I think it was, by Grendel Bryerton. Do you know Do you know these? Are you familiar with these Feghouts? No. They ran for many, many years. I'm pretty sure that uh, in later decades, they moved to Asimov's magazine. I'm pretty sure that's where they were published in the 80s. And the author, Grendel Bryerton, is an anagram of Reginald Bretnor, who is the real author of these. Oh, wow. Uh, born 1911, died 1992, uh, flourished from the 50s to the 80s. I didn't even make a note of what the plot was of this, because the whole purpose of the Ferdinand Feghout stories, it's a, a crazy setup that resolves itself to a pun that you're supposed to laugh at. But I just groaned. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of realized what they were getting at as you read it, and it's a, it's a short read. You're mm. kind of wondering, what? how is all this working? <laughs> when I was dating my wife, she told me this joke about leaving your harp in Sam Clam's disco. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it kind of wanders on and has all these little parts, and then you're able to pick the parts to put together the pun that you want at the end, and that that's what the story is all about. Yeah, and it's all over in... What, about half a page, I suppose, was it? Yes. You got any more to say on that one, or should we move on? Oh, let's move on. <laughs> Immediately after that, according to my notes, there was a quarter page listing the Hugo winners for 1962. Oh, well, I noticed that uh, they mentioned Brian Aldiss's Hothouse series, yes. and that was originally published in this magazine. Oh, yes. So it's nice that it kind of comes round trip to say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we found this. 
the Hugo for Best Novel that year was Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, which is one of the more famous novels from the field. Some people still hold it in high esteem to this day. I don't know that I've ever read it, frankly, because I haven't read much Heinlein. As you say, Brian Aldiss for the Hothouse series was the short fiction Hugo. Rod Serling for The Twilight Zone was the uh, sort of media or film and TV Hugo. And the best professional magazine editor was John W. Campbell, who was the dominating influence on American science fiction through the 1940s, well, from the 1940s onwards, through to about 1970-something, when he stopped being the editor of Analog, or Astounding Stories, as it originally was. Nowadays, John W. Campbell is kind of persona non grata, because people are very much aware that he was rather a racist, and so his name has been removed from some of the awards that were given in his name. The next story, Behind the Stumps by Russell Kirk. Yes, there's a a rather strict rule-minded young man who is sent to a remote part of the state in order to collect some uh, back taxes that are due. Uh, again, this is one of those stories where it, it starts off being rather humorous because the characterization of this guy is that he's extremely strict, upright, uptight. <laughs> and they sent him to a place uh, that it's a lot like where I grew up. It was very rural, very, you know, what I call redneck. There were two groups of people where I grew up. There were the the, the rednecks who were um, all loggers who were would, would leave every morning at five o'clock and drive for miles to cut trees and the farmers who would get up at five o'clock in order to take care of their farms. <laughs> That's a very coarse characterization of where I grew up, but it's generally true. Mm-hmm. And uh, the man who was sent there is, you know, highly strict, highly rigid, sent to enforce a bunch of laws that no one is particularly excited about. Mm-hmm. And he is warned away from one particular family and decides that be- Uh, Because he is in the right, he's going to go over there tomorrow in his car and deal with those people because he has the right behind him. And they are the Golsons, I think. And and that's where we learn uh, a little rhyme, which I didn't write down the whole rhyme. I just wrote down four words. Mrs. Golson, old witch. And then it sort of resolves uh, along those lines, more like a little horror story. Yeah. So he goes to the property. He finds it completely empty. And walks into someone else's house, which seems a little uh, little forward, and then walks into someone's bedroom, which is even more forward, and then gets his comeuppance from Mrs. Golson. Yeah. So that's Russell Kirk. Now, Russell Kirk is not somebody who is known in the UK, I don't think. But uh, I, I know he's, he's quite well known in the States. I mean, he's he's more best known, I think, more as a political theorist, um, uh, sort of an, a moralist, and um, famous for his writings on conservatism. Had you ever heard of him? No. Oh, <laughs> so maybe it, it's just in certain circles, sort of academic circles, he may be known. Russell Kirk, born 1918, died 1994. I thought this one was okay as a story although I thought it took a long time to get where it needed to be, because it seems to spend a lot of time telling us about this character, Cribbin, the special agent who sent out to do this deed. We're not shown much about him, we're told it. And it takes a long time before we actually see anything happening. And that's sort of more in the second half of the story. And that's 
to me that's where it gets good although i like the introductory description as well of the small town and the sort of the, the conservative nature of this place that he goes to on the whole i, th- I think it's well it's certainly a better story than uh, the one about the rocket going through the center of the earth i was always confused about what we're supposed to know about this extremely long description about mr cribben our main character so there's his army time where he makes the statement corporal about that morning report I see you use eraser to clean up this ink blot instead of correction fluid. Watch that, Corporal. We'll use correction fluid, understand? <laughs> uh, shall we move on? Yeah, let's go on to the next one. If you're a student, by the way, and you're living in 1962, you can get nine issues of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for $2. That's a bargain. It is. <laughs> uh, the next story, with the unlikely title of Senor Zumbero's Leg... And it's written by, this is where I show off my terrible Spanish pronunciation, Félix Martí Ibáñez. Born 1911, died 1972, a Spanish-born writer, resident in the US, although the the bio in the magazine makes out that he's Brazilian because the story's set in Brazil. But I found no evidence that he was in or from Brazil. He was Spanish, uh, mostly known for his essays. So you've got this man called Mr. Zumbera, and he lives in a town called Zumbera. And it's 50 miles south of Sao Paulo, uh, except it isn't, because I looked it up and there's no such place, so it's a fictional place. And it's the world capital of artificial legs. Mr. Zumbera has had trouble with his legs, so with his artificial legs, so he calls upon a sorceress to solve his problems, I've written down here. But he also sends his son off to buy him a deluxe leg. Uh, But the the son gets distracted by the sales girl and then by evidently every woman he ever meets. And uh, after much rambling, I could not tell you the ending of this story because I gave up three quarters of the way through. Oh, you didn't get to the punchline? Well, I did because I I skimmed through the final (laughs) quarter. But okay. I thought this was so oh, it's awful. <laughs> yes. So the basic characterizations of Mr. Zumbiera and his son are kind of important. So Mr. Zumbiera yeah. is the father. He is the, uh, and he's very rich and successful. He is a widower and he yep. needs a leg. Yes. And so he sends his son, who is a bit lazy and a bit of a woman's man, a rake perhaps, to the sorceress and when he goes to the sorceress he gets two charms because he can get them on a bargain yeah uh, one is for his father to get a replacement leg and the other one is that he will have women literally hanging off of him mm-hmm. but it's it's almost a throwaway episode it, 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 he goes there and then nothing seems to happen and so the father says hey i didn't get my leg this didn't work i'm sending you out to go buy me a leg and everywhere the younger zombiera goes Women literally just start falling in love with him. And he has romantic episodes. We're told about how beautiful and intelligent, princessly, enterprising all these other women are. And it almost becomes a a farce to where this guy has so many women attached to him that eventually he has to go home so he can marry them all, including a Siamese princess who is three women all attached at the waist together. Oh, yes. Yes. And it turns out that when they go back to their home to be presented to his father, every one of them brings uh, at least one artificial leg. Mm -hmm. And then they have so many artificial legs, they become the world capital for reselling artificial legs. Yeah. 
<laughs> What's the moral of the story? Apart from being a farce and therefore something to be laughed at or laughed along with, I couldn't see any point to this story at all. Well, I mean, in the end, uh, the widower gets a wife and a leg and a backup <laughs> leg because she also only has one leg. Um, you you may not have seen the scene where Mr. Zambiero finds this out. He's like, oh, you also only have one leg. Then when I, I reached through the gate and, and touched your fine leg, what was going on? And he goes, she, she, the lady says, the widow says, oh, I brought my maid forward and that was her leg. And, and then he kind of goes, well, bring her too. She's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Dear. So what do you think of it? Out of anything in here, uh I might reread this one. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. because um, it was funny. Hmm. You know, yeah. it's a it's a light read, not too bad. I mean I I did like the the sort of the breezy tone of it at the beginning. But it just seemed to be going around in circles. Yeah, I think he could have gone with like four women instead of 10 yes. i think is what he ends up with at the end yeah yeah yeah. it also struck me as really quite a sexist story yeah and highly whereas i mean the the earlier stories maybe well the, the one about traveling through the center of the earth i don't think that would be published nowadays because the the science is just clunky um the behind the stumps the one about the the small town i think that would be publishable today because it's it's about a curious little place. But this one is just so of its time. Actually, I didn't know the world was quite that sexist in 1962, but evidently it was. Yeah, in our world today, yeah, this would not be published. Yeah. But it, it does make you wonder about the relative progressivism mm -hmm. in science fiction at the time versus what was going on in the general world. I suppose so. It's worth saying, I suppose, that one of the reasons why we, we're delving into these old magazines is because we want to see how science fiction has changed, how the, the publishing field has changed, how the genre has changed, how the interests of the field uh, sort of reflect or don't the, the times in which they're published. Um, and of course, we think of 1962 as being the 60s, but... Um, I, I don't know who, who it was who said this, but some people have said the 60s didn't actually begin till 1965. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you need to get a good number of years into a decade before it has the flavour of that decade. So far, all the stories that we've read from this one, they don't feel like stories from the 60s. My conception of the 60s as being all about counterculture and all of that, there's no evidence of that at all. Uh, in these stories from 62. But that's because the 60s didn't really begin yet. <laughs> yeah, that what we think about for the 60s, about being full of counterculture and, and other things, that, yeah, those things didn't become widespread and popular until the mid-60s. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to the next item? Yeah. Which is it's actually a, a science column, which I took me by surprise because I didn't expect this magazine to have a, a sort of a factual science column in there. Uh, but it's all about binary numbers. Well, they, they go to the trouble of having two articles about binary, one by Isaac Asimov and one by Frederick Pohl. And it, it just struck me as kind of amazing that the readers of a science fiction magazine would need to have this explained to them. Because I don't know about you, but I think I learned about binary when I was about 10 years old. <laughs> and it's... I might have been a little older than 10. But... Oh, you think? Um <laughs> 
I'm sure I'm sure I was introduced to binary at that sort of age. But certainly kids growing up now are taught the fundamentals of binary and they're taught that this is the language of computers and, and all of that. But in 1962, obviously, nobody had access to a computer unless you were NASA or IBM. What do you think? I, I want to start by asking you back a question mm. because we talked about the, the cover of the magazine. Mm-hmm. When I saw the, the, the names Isaac Asimov and Frederick Pohl listed, I was really excited to read some of their short fiction. Yes. I, I did not expect to see these very scholarly engineering-based articles. And um, for those of you that, that don't know, before I was a computer programmer, I was a chip designer. My, my, my degree was uh, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Electrical Engineering. So a lot of this was old hand. It's like, oh, I haven't seen this kind of stuff really in a decade. But yeah, it was nice to have the reminder about non-base 10 numbers and how to calculate them and how to also calculate them and why they work that way well in computers. And Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all interesting stuff and, and still valid. But I guess really we're, we're in at the beginning of the computer age, really, in 1962. Um, I, I don't know how many people had been into space at that point, but it was probably just two or three people, you know, and computers filled entire rooms in those days mm-hmm. so this was this was new stuff cutting edge really but yeah i share with you the <laughs> the view that putting the names of asimov and pole on the cover of this magazine is a bit of a cheat because you think there's going to be some stories in there by them fred pole's article the, the weirdest bit is that he suggests how we should pronounce binary numbers and <laughs> I thought, I thought, Fred, Fred, what are you thinking? People don't need to say these numbers because what we do is we give the numbers to a computer. The computer needs to understand them, but we don't ever need to say these out loud. But according to Fred Pohl, <laughs> this is his suggestion. The, the number zero in binary, if you're using just three bits, so the number zero is zero, zero, zero. He suggests we should pronounce that. Uh, and one. Do you remember how he suggests we should pronounce one? No, I I briefly <laughs> tried to pronounce some of those things. Then I started, you know, speed reading through that part. Yeah, uh, one should be pronounced uh, t. Okay, so it's like it's like zero uh, but you add a t to the end of it. And two zero one zero should be pronounced uh t uh, and so on and so on. So <laughs> you come up with a re- a really elaborate scheme. Um, for saying a thing that we'll, we will never need to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I kind of see his point in, in the generic sense because we work in decimal. And so to say the word, you know, 2022, yeah. you know exactly what number I'm talking about. Yes. If we were to talk about numbers in binary, which is, you know, a far more space efficient way to score numbers, mm-hmm. we might not talk about numbers in decimal anymore. Yeah. Oh, absolutely we might, true. Yeah. yeah, we might take these octal uh, phonemes or hexadecimal phonemes and try and say them that way. And so it was it was fantastic watching him develop this language. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what comes next? Book reviews. Book reviews. Did you recognize any of the titles being reviewed? I actually did not read the book review section. Ah, okay. I was tempted to skip it, but it listed three books, two of which I've never heard of. One of which I have heard of, but I think if it is known today, it is probably only known by, I'm going to say, fans of ancient British TV. 
because the book that's being reviewed, it's called A for Andromeda, and it's by Fred Hoyle and John Elliott, who are British writers, and it was a novelisation of a BBC science fiction drama series from 1961. So they wrote the series and then they wrote the novel. Fred Hoyle was a, a well-known science fiction writer and scientist. A for Andromeda, the TV series, is lost. Very little of it survives today. People who saw it say it was marvellous. And the, the book apparently is quite good. Um, Fred Hoyle. Do you, do you know anything about Fred Hoyle? No. Fred Hoyle was a very distinguished astronomer, British um, astronomer. He always sounded to me very working class. He was a northerner. Uh, and he always sounded very down to earth. But he had some weird ideas. Uh, he was Sir Fred Hoyle, so that shows how esteemed he was. He was honoured by the Queen herself for his work in astronomy. He is the person who invented the term the Big Bang. But he invented it because he didn't believe in it. And it was a, a disparaging term because he believed in the steady state theory that, you know, that the universe was unchanging over time. So huh. he was he was wrong on that count. I mean, fair <laughs> enough, in his heyday, there was no evidence for a Big Bang. That came, I suppose, about a decade or maybe 20 years after he coined the term Big Bang, that we finally had some physical evidence of uh, the existence of the Big Bang. He also, in his later career, he co-wrote a number of books with the... Indian scientist Chandra Wickrama Singh uh, and there were books about panspermia so it's the idea that life didn't begin on the earth but arrived here by crossing the, the vast spaces between the planets and the stars considered now to be total bunkum and even at the time it was not very well received in the scientific community. Anyway, that's all related to the book reviews, the only book in the book review section that I knew. So shall we go on to another story? Yeah, yeah. Ad Infinitum by Sasha Gillian, or Gillian, I don't know how to pronounce the name there. This is an author that I've not been able to find out anything about, really. Uh, he died in 1971. I couldn't find a birth date. And the only things that I found any credits for relating to this author is TV work. So he apparently wrote some scripts for The Big Valley, which was a Western series in the 60s, and Hawaii Five-0. Wow. But other than that, almost nothing. This was an, an interesting story. It reminds me, I guess, of Stephen King's book, The Langoliers, where every day, uh, or actually every second, reality is being built up around us and then torn down behind us as we as we proceed through it. Uh, this story is about a dream supervisor who was in charge of male symbolism in dreams. Yeah. And uh, we hear, we, we, we learn about male symbolism and how it differs from female symbolism. And the title of the story is Ad Infinitum, which is, you know, forever, to go on forever. And as as we progress, we learn that this man who is the director of male symbolism in dreams has aspirations of doing more to, to work better with his peers, to, to bring more meaning to the dreams. And he's a, he eventually catches the notice of, of his managers and is invited into a meeting where he's being told about the new big project, which is that they're going to build a dream that is an entire life, not just little snippets of life, but an entire life that will require every group in the, in the dream landscape, I suppose you would say. 
business. And the topic of the dream is going to be a dream supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the ad infinitum comes in because he's going to be building a dream about himself and it's going to end in someone building a dream about himself and ad infinitum. Yeah, yeah. So it's you can sort of see it coming at a certain point, can't you? You can see where it where it's heading there. And I I thought this one was okay, and this is probably the only story here that reminded me more of what we read in Galaxy. You know, last year when we looked at the, looked at the 1951 Galaxy magazine, we found stories that were perhaps a little bit more psychological and a bit more sociological. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that this story was more in that kind of vein. But having said that, it, it felt a bit of a throwaway story. Doesn't it suggest that you, the reader, are part of this dream as well? Like a little twist at the end. And that seemed a little bit too easy. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it seemed like a filler piece. By this point in the magazine, I don't know how you were feeling about it. I I was flipping back to the table of contents and hoping that there were still some more stories to come that might be good because I was thinking, that one's okay, but it's not very good as a magazine so far. You know, the the overall impact is not great. Yeah, I wasn't in love with it. Although the next story is uh, incredible. Mm -hmm. I don't mean necessarily good, but it's it's rich and it's deep and it's thought provoking and yeah. uh, that's what I would I've I've read several Gordon Dixon novels ah. uh, his his funny side where he did more fantasy the uh, the dragon and the George mm-hmm. and then I have read several series in the is it the Dorsai series yeah the Dorsai series yeah. I read four or five novels from there and really enjoyed those. Yeah, I've read some of those back in the day. Um, so this one's called Roofs of Silver. Gordon R. Dixon, the author, uh, I've got his dates as 1923 to 2001. And interestingly, in the, the little bio before the story in the magazine, it says he is, and I quote, one of the very few writers living exclusively from SF. Whereas many writers have to have a kind of a side gig to be able to make money. Uh, from their science fiction. We're on a... I, I guess you'd describe it as an Earth colony, so on some distant world, and there's an official report has been prepared on the population degenerating in some way on this planet. And the, the, our central character is called Jabe. He doesn't believe this. He doesn't believe that the population is degenerating to a dangerous point, as the report suggests because he thinks there's there's more of a sort of a steady state situation where some individuals degenerate into these things called wild ones but the other non-wild ones kill them when it happens so that the degeneracy does not increase over time it kind of stays at the same level so jabe really wants to prove that this is the case but unfortunately his thinking that that tries to lead him towards that uh, has him killing somebody so he kills a character called moran i kind of felt that that was going to come back later you know it happens very early in the story and you kind of get the feeling that um he's going to pay the price for this Mm -hmm. so we go through a whole series of events eventually he is arrested but the the best summary of the story is actually in the little blurb before the story which i will read it says the agents of a superior civilization 
and in brackets it says, was it? So the agents of a superior civilization, was it? Watching and judging the decaying local culture, was it? Which tried to protect itself from the brutal and ignorant wild men, were they? While only one man knew what was wrong, but did he? So, <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty is, accurate. That is a good a good uh, description of the twists and turns of the story, but also that every part of it is: is it? Is this true? Is this really what's happening? So you're sort of led to question what's going on in the story, and I found myself as the story progressed trying to make up my mind several times whether Jabe was doing the right thing. Obviously, he did the wrong thing when he killed a man, but each step of the way, what he's trying to prove, you're not entirely sure that he's right. And that, so that kind of moral ambiguity that runs throughout the story, I thought was terrific and made this, so far, the only story in the magazine that had any sense of characterization that stood up. Uh, it did feel like a Western, though, rather than oh, a yeah. science fiction story. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. So I tend to identify with characters and, and to put myself into the story. And so I'm thinking, oh, yes, Jabe is trying to stop a travesty from happening, to stop this mm. planet from being sterilized yes. uh, improperly. And then you're kind of led back out of that to understand that, uh, one, Jabe is compromised in several ways. Yes. Um, yes. And it's it's something that uh, Marin actually asks him about. He says, you know, you, you've married one of them and are expecting a child and you've been here 10 years. Are you sure that you aren't over-naturalized? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's kind of a throwaway thing where you think, oh, no, the guy that's living there really knows better than his supervisor who just comes every once in a while. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, on the, a lot at stake. They're going to sterilize all the human life humanoid life on the planet if this happens it's not just a small undertaking it's rather extreme and severe indeed so then you know i'm thinking oh so he's more like a, a father who is protecting his wife and child who he knows are good mm -hmm. but then at the end of the story she's all ecstatic about the fact they get to burn the wild man alive <laughs> inst <laughs> instead of just you know providing justice for the crimes that he really did yes Jabe has this idea that if he takes some psychological readings from the townspeople and a wild man, that he'll be able to show that the degeneration is limited just to the wild men. But he finds out that the wild men are actually creative and uh, deep and thoughtful and really no different from the townspeople. But then he contrives to hide all that. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? He's, he's, he's sort of so conflicted in terms of what he wants to achieve and what he wants to demonstrate and what he's willing to concede about himself. So I thought that, that complexity, it, it's kind of teetering on the edge of, of the story falling apart. But I, on the whole, I felt as if uh, all of this was, was helping to enrich that particular character. And, and that's why I'm more sympathetic to what this story does than some of the others that we've read. Yeah. Roofs of Silver is the title of the story. And what that turns out to refer to, the, the wild one that he comes to know has a, a, a kind of a false perception that the, the silver from the silver mine that they're, they're mining in this town is used to make the corrugated tin roofs of the houses in the town. So there's 
sort of a, a feeling that there's something metaphorical in the speech of this wild one, that he's not just seeing the mine as being something that generates wealth or, or whatever it is, but it's actually used for some purpose of protecting and nurturing people and, and all of that. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that for the for a little bit of education and socialization, he would really not be that different from the townspeople. Indeed. And in fact, wasn't Jabe supposed to have been a wild one at some point? He had some lucky happenstance where the townspeople accepted, accepted him in. Yeah, so I thought this was a very rich piece. And I was relieved because I thought, wow, this is a decent piece of science fiction in the form of a Western. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been great science fiction written in the form of Westerns. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Should we move on to the next one? Yes. I think it's the, well, aside from the ads at the end, it's, the, it's our last story. So the last one is The Notary and the Conspiracy by, I get to show off my French again, Colin. (laughs) (laughs) It's by Henri Damonti, uh, translated from the French by Damon Knight. Now, we came across Damon Knight in Galaxy 1951 because he was the author of one of the stories. But here he's translated from the French. Yeah. That means there are two stories in this issue which are not entirely... North American. We, we had the story earlier, which is by somebody who was born and grew up in Spain and then moved to the US. And then we've got this one, which is written by, well, a French speaker, I assume from France. I've not been able to find out anything at all about this author, but I assume he's from France. And this one is about a man who receives a mysterious call and an invitation to join a hobby club. And the members of this club are allowed to lead a second life in the past. And because he is a notary in everyday life in the 20th century, he chooses to be a notary in 15th century Florence with inevitable consequences. (laughs) There's something that he hadn't thought through and uh, he nearly comes to a sticky end. There are lots of stories where people go back in time. Uh, you, You see them in their normal everyday life and then they go back in time and we see them living in the past and then they come back to the present and we see them in the present again. That's the, the the basic mechanism of something like Octavia Butler's Kindred, for example. What this story does is it says, no, what you get is you live in the past, but you're living in the present and the past kind of simultaneously. So you can have a conversation with somebody who's in the room with you now, but you can also turn your head and talk to somebody in 15th century Florence, and you're kind of in two places at once. And I thought that was really nice. It was very nifty the way it uh, shifted from past to present without ever having to show any mechanism of travel. Overall, though, it didn't seem a terribly profound story unless I missed something. No, I uh, I started it and didn't finish it because it lost my interest. Oh, so this is your your equivalent of uh, Senor Zambera's leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's all I've got in terms of notes on that one because it, it is actually quite a slight story. And then we've just got all the stuff that kind of anchors this magazine in its time. There's an editorial, which is by Avram Davidson, who's the sort of the main editor of the magazine. And he reports on his recent visit to the 20th World Con. So he's just come back from Shikon 3, so the third Chicago science fiction convention uh, in the World Science Fiction Convention series, the 20th. This year, 2022, 
we've just had what I imagine must have been the 80th Worldcon, and it was in Chicago. It was Chicon 8. So what a curious parallel between now and 1962. But what it made me realise is 1962 really was very close to the beginning of organised fandom. I mean, there were 20 years in. This was the 20th Worldcon, so they're like 20 years in. But that was 60 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, the the birth of science fiction was really just in the relatively recent past uh, compared to where we are now. Yeah. yeah that, that, uh, we finally have a group of fans of a topic large enough to sustain that and bring it to where we are today. Yeah. And of course, nowadays, science fiction conventions are full of stuff to do with film and media and all of that. Back in the day, it was really just about the literature. There might have been stuff about comics, I suppose, but there were, in 1962, not a great many science fiction films being made, n- not much science fiction television. So it was really, it was uh, literature that was driving those conventions. There's a, uh, the editorial starts with the description of the author trying to figure out how to pronounce something in a science fiction book, which is, which is pretty mm-hmm. common, right? Uh, there's always an unusual <laughs> name for a person or a thing or a planet. Yes. It's like, well, how do you say that? Yes, like Jabe. Like Jabe. Are we saying that correctly, right? <laughs> and so this one author came up with something, the secret weapon, which will save us from the enemy. And it was called AKKA. Mm. And there was the, you know, the, the discussion, right? well, is it Akka or is it AKKA? <laughs> and because they're at the convention, you can actually talk to the author and ask them, how, how, how do you say this? And the guy goes, oh, I always called it AKKA. And the yeah. author was happy because it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I thought it was. Obviously, nowadays, it's a little bit easier in general terms because you can tweet the author. Although, um, and, and maybe this is a, a time for a quick checkpoint in time. Mm. So this is December of 2022. And Elon Musk has recently bought Twitter and has really kind of upset the pot uh, to be polite about things. And I had no, no understanding about how much the current science fiction magazines depend on Twitter to find readers and stay in touch with authors and to use that as a medium of advertising uh, to the fans. Yes, yes. And so, you know, the loss of Twitter as a channel for them is a is a threat to mm-hmm. the future of science fiction magazines. And so, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how the the science fiction world changes in response to what's going on with Twitter. So, by the time you're listening to this, those of you who've left it 20 years to get around to listening to this episode of the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> you will know. You'll be sitting there in the middle of the post-atomic wasteland and you will know what replaced Twitter but right now we don't know <laughs> just uh, on the, the final little bits in the magazine the uh, there's a page in there where you can fill in a coupon for your Christmas gift subscription for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction four dollars for one year for all the print issues of the magazine do you know what that works out as in 2022 dollars, Colin? No. What is it? $39 and a few cents. Guess what one year's subscription of fantasy and science fiction costs today? Is it about $39 yeah. in some odd sense? <laughs> it certainly <laughs> is. Yes. <laughs> wow. So they've, they've kept pace with inflation. You know, I, I did think about buying you a Christmas present because, you know, I was, get, I was going to get myself a $4 subscription and get you the $3 <laughs> one. <laughs> 
Um, then they've got some small ads, uh, which these magazines tend to do. Most of them are not at all interesting, but I did notice that there is a Feghoot book available uh, containing the first 45 Feghoots. So if you enjoyed Feghoot, what was it, 57 in this issue of the magazine, you can go and buy another 45 of the damn things for £1.25. <laughs> oh, and then there were the ads for all the things that you see in the back of these magazines, typically um, hypnotism, uh, learn wireless sleep, IQ tests, handwriting analysis, and, oh, you could send for a book on birth control. 34 methods explained, it said. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> now, my wife is a certified nurse midwife, and I don't know that there are 34 valid methods of birth control. <laughs> uh, well, th 30 of them have been discredited since 1962, <laughs> you see. <laughs> We've learned so much in the last 60 years. We indeed. Um, there's a little bit that states the circulation of the magazine. So in 1962, apparently, they had 56,000 issues and they estimated a readership of about three per issue. So, you know, because people pass magazines on to their friends or family. So 56,000 issues. I couldn't find any current information for the magazine, but the last figure I could find was from 2011, which admittedly is a, a long time ago. But in 2011, the circulation of the same magazine was down to 15,000. So from 56 down to 15,000. Yeah, it'd be interesting to find out. So, you know, science fiction started, I mean, the pulps made science fiction broadly popular because it disseminated it to a large group of people. Yeah. I'm wondering if these days, if most readers, consumers of science fiction, get their science fiction from television and movies instead of books and magazines. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Movies make millions. Not every movie, but successful movies make millions of dollars, and they have to to recover their costs. But if a magazine just sells fifty odd thousand issues, you know that's not going to make very much money. No. So, no. And we've yeah. talked about how today that most magazines are not supported by are subs subscribers, but by um, by by multiple means, where they hold. Uh, you know, kickstarting fundraisers, yeah. and it might have a Patreon in addition to a subscription, and there's at some advertising revenue in some places. Yeah. But they seem to have this hybrid model where they are you get first it goes to your paid subscribers and supporters, and then later on it's all released on the web for free. Yeah. So it's it's all completely changed, doesn't it, since 1962? Because it's the end of volume 23 of the magazine, uh, it, it appears that fantasy and science fiction published two volumes per year and volume 23 covered the issues between july and december of that year so they've got an index of that range of dates and it's interesting to to pull out the names there i've ignored all the ones i didn't recognize but i've just made a note of everybody who had appeared in the magazine between july and december of 62 brian aldis isaac asimov alfred bester james blish john Brunner, truman capote no idea what that was for. Terry Carr, Harlan Ellison, really in the early stages of his career, before he sort of won any of the major awards and that kind of thing. Ron Goulart, Zena Henderson, who would become very big in the late 60s, early 70s. Fritz Leiber, who was big all the way through the 20th century and still has a fan following today. J.T. McIntosh, Judith Merrill, who would again become very important um, 
as an anthologist uh, as well as a writer. Fred Pohl, uh, Kit Reed, Joanna Russ, again, somebody whose major career was ahead of her at that point. Robert Checkley, Theodore Sturgeon, who's one of the old school, if you like. Kate Wilhelm, another author who became very big in the late 60s, early 70s. Robert F. Young. So there's a long list of names, some of whom may or may not be familiar to our listeners, but some of those authors are people who were there from the earliest days and were still publishing in the early 60s. Some of these were authors in the early phase of their career and would be the dominant figures in the ensuing decades. So it's it's interesting to get that little snapshot in time. We're also in between two things going on. That's right. The The old golden age of science fiction and what we saw in the Galaxy magazine from the 50s kind of giving way eventually to the sort of new wave stuff of the 1960s. But I don't know about you, but I don't see any evidence of a new waviness in any of this issue of this magazine from 62. No. It all feels very staid, and in some ways it felt a bit of a step backwards from the Galaxy magazine. Well, we are talking about 10 years of time and a different publication with different readership. True. In, in Galaxy, everything we read was by guys. And here, at least, there's a little bit of international representation. Yep. And looking at the index, there are some lady authors. Yes, that's right. So this particular issue doesn't have any, but uh, you're right. The From the index of previous issues, yes, indeed, they have had some. So all of that looks better for the future, I think. But what will be interesting, I, I don't know if you've thought ahead, Colin, but if we follow the same pattern, you know, last year we did... 1951 because it was 2021 and this year we've done 1962 because it's 2022 so we're moving forward 11 years if we keep this up um by the year 2028 we'll be reading a december 2028 magazine we'll have caught up with ourselves and that means the following year 2029 we'll actually have to read a magazine from the future oh <laughs> <laughs> I'd better get my retro encabulator going so that we can do that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think of it as a magazine? I, I was a little disappointed. Yeah, me too. I, I was thinking, you know, you know, sci-fi in the past, so great, so grand. And I realized that maybe it's only great and grand because I've only been reading the things that survived until today. That's right. I mean, I think we had a sense of that last year when we did Galaxy. But I was, yeah, I was sorely disappointed with this issue. I really thought this might be the one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, not quite. But I, I tried to put things in order. I thought the top three for me, the Gordon Dixon story, Silver Roofs, is the best one by a long chalk. And I would read that one again. Uh, in second place, I put Damonti's Notary and the Conspiracy. And in third place, I put Ad Infinitum. And beyond that, I I wouldn't give any of these stories a second look. Huh. Yeah, I didn't rank them, but let me try and do it quickly off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roofs of Silver, I agree, is definitely the best thing in this magazine. Yeah. And as far as like science fiction versus more fantastic things, I think The Depths would be the next best one. Yeah. Um, and then I would throw in the one about Sen- Senor Zumbiera just because I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Where if, if you're willing to put aside your 2020 moral sensitivities, uh, which I don't think you should do on a general basis, mm-hmm. uh, you, you might you know go back to an old misogynistic view of the world where you want a bunch of women hanging off you. 
I have a quiz for you, my friend. Oh, no. Oh, no, it's a good quiz. Hooray. <laughs> it's a good quiz. I created it myself. Tell me more. I have created for you the science fiction cat quiz. <laughs> what I have found is that science fiction authors tend to like cats better than dogs because there are lots and lots of cats as characters and in titles. So I have found and and created for you nine titles of science fiction stories and their famous authors. And your job is to try and uh, figure out which title goes with which author. Oh, my word. And this is why you were suggesting that I print these out so I could yes. draw lines between them. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Okay. Now, how many are there? Let's have a look. Is it about ten? Well, there's nine, because nine, it's cats. Nine, nine lives, of course. Oh. So, for the listeners at home, I shall read them. Cat's Eye, With Cat for Comforter, Man Xin Wars, I'm hoping that's pronounced correctly, Time Pussy, yes, you heard correctly, uh, Time <laughs> Cat, Cat's Paw, two words, Cat Pictures Please, uh, cat's paw, one word. The cat who walks through walls, and finally, tail chaser's song. And then I've got a list of authors that I need to pair up with these. So, I'm, first of all, I'm going to pick out the ones that I recognise straight away. Uh, with cat for comforter is Ray Bradbury. I thought you might know that one. Yeah, I should get a piece of paper and a pencil and keep track. That would be good. You, you know by now that. I never do that. <laughs> I, well, I always start off with a piece of paper and a pencil, but I never actually keep accurate notes on these. Uh, the next one that I recognise is uh, Man Xin Wars, or at least I think I do. I think that's Larry Niven. That's correct. Yeah. Then the next one I distinctly recognise is Cat's Ball One Word, which is Robert Block. I have cat's paw two words as being Robert Block, but we'll give that ah. to you because it's it's a uh, it's confusing. Okay, this was a Star Trek episode, the famous Halloween episode where they go yeah. to a magic castle and the Enterprise gets encapsulated in a uh, crystal ball. That's it. And the cat who walks through walls, I think, is Robert Heinlein. That's correct. I'm going to guess, and this is just a guess. I'm going to guess that Tail Chaser's song might be by Andre Norton. No, although that's a very good guess. Andre Norton loved writing about cats, and they, mm. they feature in her stories pretty prominently. Mm. Is it Naomi Kritzer? No. Oh, I must admit I was expecting to see Stephen King in this list, but he's not there. <laughs> Time Pussy is a rather bizarre title, and that's either got to be a modern-day story that is humorous, or it's something very innocent from the past. I'm wondering if that might be an Isaac Asimov story from way back. It is. <laughs> oh! Cat Pictures, Please is one I've heard of, but I cannot remember who that's by. I wonder if that's Naomi Kritzer. That is. Way. Cat Pictures, Please is about an AI oh. that has uh, become sentient and wants more cat pictures, please. Right, right. So which ones have I got left? I've got Cat's Eye, and I've no idea really who that's by. 
So I'm going to I'm going to stab that that one is Andre Norton. That is correct. Oh, good, good, good. So we're getting through them now. Uh, what's left? I've got Time Cat. Who could have written Time Cat? I wonder if that's Tad Williams. That is not. It, it, I'll give you a hint. It's by another famous fantasy author. Another famous fantasy author. Now, you see, some of these authors I don't really know. I just know them as names on books, but I don't, I don't know their actual work. So, did I ever get Tail Chaser's song? No. So I'm going to guess that one is Tad Williams. That is correct. Whoa. Tad Williams went on to write major fantasy series called Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. And then he wrote a fantastic science fiction series called the Otherland series, which almost became a video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he went on to work on some comics and has now come back around to write a sequel to the uh, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn series, which is, I haven't read it yet, but I intend to. Okay. So what have I got left? Time Cat. Is that right? Correct. So who's left? Who that could be? Surely Joan Vinge's not written a story called Time Cat. No, no. <laughs> um, Lloyd Alexander wrote Time Cat. He did. Way. What have I got left? What have I missed? Uh, you only have left Cat's Paw. Oh, the other Cat's Paw. Well, who's the author that's left then? Joan Vinge. Oh, of course. Yes, I still haven't assigned her to anything. So she wrote that. Okay. Yeah, I, you, I believe you got seven of them correct. Oh. Well, thank you for that. I've uh, I've learned a lot about cats in science fiction titles. <laughs> Just to finish, shall we do a very quick past, present and future, if you've got any items to, to mention? I have a few things, yeah. Give me a past item. I finished the omnibus uh, novel of uh, the Interstellar Hospital called Beginning Operations by James White. Oh, fantastic. And you still recommend it? I still do. So my mom is a nurse. My wife is a nurse. My great aunt was a nurse. <laughs> Many of my cousins are, ner- are nurses or doctors. And so I'm, I'm steeped in medical culture. And to think about that being applied to science fiction from 60 years ago was really interesting. Mm. Uh, there's still a bunch of, you know, misogyny. <laughs> uh, but it's it's found in this idea that the doctors are dedicated to providing medical care for anybody, even if you do spend time looking at the cute nurse working next to you. Mm-hmm. And the kind of challenges that they have, being on a space station, dealing with aliens who work in incredible different climates with extremely different physiologies, was just really interesting to me. I've only got one past item, and I, I know it's something that you've seen because you've reviewed it on your other podcast. I... Finally, in this last week or so, watched the film The Girl with All the Gifts from 2016. And wow. I, I was quite impressed. I, I, I really liked most aspects of it. Um, I, I've said before on the podcast that I don't care too much for zombie films because they're mostly all the same. There are maybe two or three zombie films that are worth seeing because of their original contribution to the genre. But for the most part, they're just very repetitive. But I thought this was one of the more original ones because of the way the film opens um, in that sort of classroom setting. And you're wondering why these children are sort of bound hand and foot and only gradually do you realise what's going on. I thought it was very good. Yeah. What about present? Any present items? Uh, I also finished watching the new Star Wars series Andor. 
Okay. Uh, which is quite different from your typical spaceship, space station, Jedi battle. It's much more espionage-based. And uh, I think it's entirely possible that we're going to see... Actually, uh, several of the uh, TV awards have already come out, and Andor was nominated twice for Best Series and Best Dramatic Actor in a Series. That's sort of showing a step up, because science fiction things in the past have, have never really done well in sort of general awards. Uh, special effects, yes. Yeah. But for anything else, they, they usually don't do very well. Any other present? Well, talking about magazines, mm -hmm. uh, there's a magazine that kind of falls into my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, Habitat's magazine on Kickstarter is going to be a brand new optimistic science fiction magazine dedicated to publishing uplifting short stories with beautiful illustrations and photography. Great. Um, the only other item I've got is a future item, which is in February. That's February 2023. I shall be giving a public talk on... Fahrenheit 451 as part of Wolverhampton's Literature Festival. <laughs> In the unlikely event that anyone listening to this is from the Wolverhampton area, uh, you can pop along to that. It costs a mere £3 to get in, uh, plus a booking fee. And I'll put a link on the website. Do you have any other future items? John Scalzi is working on a new novel. Mm -hmm. And I'm always excited for a new Scalzi book. He writes them just for you, you know. He does. He tells me that on Twitter himself. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Do we have anything else or shall we wrap up? No, I'm wrapped. I'm well and truly wrapped as well. So thanks for listening, folks. We hope you'll join us next time. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky. Our theme tune is from purpleplanet.com. Look for the show notes, as always, on our website, 101sf.blogspot.com, where you can also buy us a coffee through the tip jar. And you can find us at Science Fiction 101 on Facebook. Finally, please follow us or subscribe to us on your podcast app. You'll find us through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we also appreciate the odd five-star review because that helps our visibility on the various platforms. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you after Christmas. See you in 2023.